0: people. Welcome to Accidental Gods. to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality. All in the service of conscious evolution, and increasingly in the service of finding a viable way through, to a future that we would be proud to leave to our children. My guest this week is a friend of the podcast. Rabbi Jill Hammer was with us back in episode 12, talking about her life as an author, a scholar, a ritualist, poet, midrashist, and, importantly for this episode, a dream worker. She's written many books, but the one we're going to concentrate on today is the one that is coming out next month. Under Torah An earth-based Kabbalah of dreams takes readers on a journey through the root systems of the dream world. It draws on a deep foundational understanding of ancient Jewish dream practice, but it also brings in many other world wisdom traditions, indigenous traditions and contemporary eco-theology. This is not just a dream manual, but it is a dream manual that will help any reader to delve far more deeply and consistently into the messages and gifts that dreams give us. So people of the podcast, please welcome for the second time, Rabbi Jill Hammer. Spring
1: 1997, Jerusalem. In a dream, I find myself moving through a temple crowded with people. On the ground floor of the temple, there are ancient marble carvings. When I ascend to the top floor, I find, to my surprise, a weapons stockade. In the outer courtyard, there is a pile of stuffed animals for sale. Then I venture into the stone tunnels under the temple. I come to caves with rock formations and then to an underground river. The river bubbles as hot water spurts up through vents in the rocks. Now I am with other companions journeying together, but still I am afraid of becoming lost in the winding passages. My companions and I make our way down the river, deep into the earth, until we find a wide place like a delta where the river branches in many directions. Then the scene changes. I am looking at a beautifully drawn map of the caves and the underground river, a map that shows all the river's branches. The branches of the river look to me like lava vents around a volcano.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. So, Rabbi Jill Hammer, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast for the second time. That makes you officially a friend of the podcast. So, thank you. And you're a colleague from New York, am I right? You're still in New York, aren't you?
1: I am still in New York and I'm so delighted to be
0: here. Thank you. You're welcome. And um, a good new year to you because we're recording this fairly early in the new year. And we're here because you have a book coming out in February called The Torah," And this is, you read from us, the dream that led you into writing this book. So it feels to me one of those books that is absolutely necessary for our time, that you've taken the concepts of dreaming and dream work, and really moved them in a very grounded way into the 21st century so that people can use this as a dreaming guide and a dreaming manual and a dreaming inspiration. So before we go into what the book is about in more detail, this dream, the one that you've just read to us, was a real dream. And as I understand it, is the one that you took as a map of your life, and then as a map of writing this book. So can you just unpick that dream for us a little bit, and then we'll look at how that led you to where you are now.
1: Sure, absolutely. This dream struck me from the moment I woke up from it as a really important dream, you know, one of those dreams that stays with you. And what really struck me about it was that the beginning of the dream is kind of a... a uh, an image of civilization, right? It's got weapons, it's got stuffed animals, it has all, you know, it has temples, right? It has all of the pieces of human experience. But in the dream, I don't stay there. I go under this temple and I end up in, inside the earth, right? In tunnels and caverns and and this underground river that seems to be leading me deeper and deeper, which is really in some ways a map of the dream process right? Of going deeper into the unconscious, but it's also a map of what happens when we as beings sort of let go our social persona and begin to connect with the elements that we are actually part of. Right. right? That I move beneath the social atom, right? And into this, you know, much deeper uh, truth and then really into the volcano, which is the heart of the earth itself. And This dream gave me, I think, the insight that when we dream, we're not only connecting to some deeper part of ourselves, but to the deepest part of our experience, which is our own connection to the earth, the cosmos, and the body.
0: And you were at rabbinical school when you had this dream, or had you finished it by then?
1: No, I was in rabbinical school. Yeah, I was studying full-time uh, at the time that I had the dream.
0: And did you begin to implement it, this sense of moving into the heart of the earth and becoming part of what feels to me like a very earth-based spirituality, which is not how I imagine rabbinical school to be? Did you begin to to step into this while you were studying, or did you have to wait, kind of qualify, get out of the way of all the people trying to fill your head with stuff, and then begin to move into the dreams?
1: Well, in a sense, it was both. When I had this dream, it was around the time that I began kind of wandering away from my studies and going to caves. Right. You know, and I was really looking for, you know, the ancestors, right? The, you know, the ancient world. And I really wasn't interested at that point in the commentary on the caves. I just wanted to see the physio- physical physical cage. I wanted to experience what it was like to be in the
0: Were you actually caving? Were you becoming a caver?
1: Uh, what I was doing was visiting, uh, for example, Hezekiah's Tunnel, which is this ancient dug water, water channel that goes between Jerusalem and the springs outside, uh, and you can walk through it. Right. And it's thousands of years old. I was in caves that people had dug uh, in soft stone to make houses for doves, to make burial tombs, to make places for themselves to live. And so I really was tuned into this Experience of being in the underground, right? Right. But that was also, I think, happening for me in a more spiritual sense. That I wanted a a tradition, a you know, a a spiritual practice that was more connected to the earth. And I did begin to uh, delve into that from that point forward.
0: I think we discussed this a little bit in our previous conversation, but people may not have heard that. And and still, it still fascinates me the extent to which people some people in the abrahamic religions are are able to take what has always to me seemed quite extractionary humanity separate from the earth texts and begin to find within them actual connection to the earth and again i'm wondering to what extent that is common within rabbinical circles and how much you are basically cleaving a new path for yourself with this
1: mm. at the time that i began to go down this path it did not feel common to me. There were other people doing it, but not that many. Okay, I was, you know, I was reading Kabbalistic texts. I was visiting shamanic circles. You know, I was sort of trying to put this together for myself. And now, you know, decades later, there are a lot of people looking at Judaism like this. And it seems that it really was a thing that was happening to bunches of people. And, you know, there's really now a, a, a movement, I would say, of you know, Jews for whom this is their chosen way of doing their spiritual practice is to connect it deeply to the earth, and you know, and that's part, of course, of a larger awakening of of people who are you know who have been in traditions that were, um, you know, much more kind of sky based or much more um, text based and felt a call to come back, you know, to these deep origins, you know, of our spiritual experience. Uh, so that's a. Uh, so that's been a wonderful thing for me to see. Yeah. You know this amazing, mm-hmm. uh, you know this amazing development. You know from being kind of lonely in this work to really feeling deeply and you know, supported and witnessed in it.
0: Excellent. And I'm just before we move off this, wondering to what extent that is accepted within the kind of wider Judaic tradition, or do you find that there are pockets of people really pushing against it and wanting you to come back to their interpretation of the text?
1: and this is also relevant to the to the dreams there's really both hmm. you know there are now i would say i tend to hang out in what's called the jewish renewal movement which is a movement that is inspired by kabbalistic and hasidic sources you know but that takes a more kind of liberal imaginative view of those sources right and in in that world you know this is actually quite exciting and normal and you know people are into it You know, and there are still plenty of Jews, like other text-based folks, who are anxious about all this. Because for them, it feels like, um, you know, it feels like earth worship, right? Or it feels like, uh, you know, it feels like things that they were told not to do. But in fact, if you look at a lot of the mystical sources, right, it's all about finding the divinity in the physical world. Right. You know, that's definitely present. Right. And yet, you know, there are people who are anxious about it, but that may be as much because of the Enlightenment as because of their religious tradition. You know, it's just this sense of if we get too close to the natural world, you know, something bad will happen to us.
0: Chaos right, might arise. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Because you've called the subtext of this book is an earth-based Kabbalah of dreams. Yeah. Have I said Kabbalah right? I'm never very sure. And so can you unpick for me what Kabbalah means in this context? Is it a deep teaching? It, tell me what it means. So
1: the book uh, is connected to Kabbalah in that it is looking to the mystical tradition of four dream work uh, practices, right? And also for a general worldview in which dreams are a way in which we connect to divine presence. And this is something you see all through the traditional Kabbalah, right? Is that when we go to sleep, we actually go to visit the divine presence, right? Our souls leave and they all go and they hang out in this amazing garden with the Shekhinah, with the beautiful feminine divine presence, right? And that's where you receive the information that becomes your dreams. Um, And uh, if you're unlucky, you run into some demons and they tell you unfortunate things. And if you're lucky or if you're, you know, virtuous, you end up, uh, you know, having wonderful dreams where angels talk to you. And then, you know, the, in the morning you come back, you know, and and you have mm-hmm. this dream, and you know this is a uh, you know a typical mystical uh, narrative of how dreams happen. Okay, but what's fascinating about that, from an earth-based point of view, is that the same entity that is providing these dreams, right, the divine presence, is also the entity that is filling the physical world, right? That's also mm-hmm. the the aspect or the facet of the divine. That is, um, you know, that is closest to our, uh, you know, our embodied experience. So the Kabbalah is making this uh, association between dreaming mm. and between kind of the dream of this this life, you know, and that was really what I was drawing on, you know, in, in the book.
0: Brilliant. Excellent. And and with great success. So how long have you been working on this? Because it's clearly you had that first dream back in 97. Some of the dreams in the book go back even before that. We're now, whatever it is, to, I can't even do the arithmetic, but many decades after that. How long have you actually been writing the book? What prompted you to sit down and, because writing is hard work and you're a rabbi and you're and a mother, you've got a lot of other things to do. What made you carve time out of your life to write with?
1: So I have to start with about 10 years ago, maybe a little more. When I had this really strange experience where people began walking up to me and saying I had a dream about you. You know, when the first time it was nice and the second time it was also nice and then the third and fourth and fifth time, you know, in the same cu- in the same period of 3 or 4 days, it got weird, you know. And yeah. What am I supposed to do with this experience? And I didn't know and I went to other uh, you know, I went to some of my teachers, they didn't know. And I thought, this is a message and I'm going to start doing more dream work. And I began to teach some of this material and to, you know, explore dreams and ways that contemporary people work with dreams, uh, with, uh, with my students and to look into some of this more ancient Jewish dream material. And over time, you know, as I taught these classes and as I collected my own dreams and the dreams of others, you know, it became clear to me that there should be a book, you know, that there should be a uh, you know, a record of these dreams and a and a way of putting together these experiences. And I also began to just have this sense of the different characters and landscapes that show up in dreams. And I particularly wanted to say something about landscapes, which I didn't see in other dream books. You know, like the way that not just the characters in the dream, but the whole landscape, you know, is a is a teaching. And so, you know, at a certain point, I I just felt like, well, I, you know, this is coming out of me. You know, it's it's time to it's time to start writing this down. And so I went through my own dreams, I combed them, and I began to interview people. And, you know, I interviewed in the end almost 70 dreamers. Wow. And it was so fascinating. And both the uniqueness of all the dreams and the similarities between them you know, were, were fascinating to me. And that really sort of fed the fire of the book, you know, that plus all of the interesting uh, uh, ancient and medieval sources that I found, you know, to, to weave in, you know, all of those yes. things uh, made the book happen.
0: Yes, and it did seem to me reading through it that you had access to some very good libraries for the ancient and medieval stuff. There was, I've obviously been working with dreams for a long time and some of this, particularly the medieval European, I had never heard of. So, so very, very impressed with that. Um, Particularly, let's go back to place because you've you've got a quote from Sharon Blackie. Place is critical. It's not just the embodied imagination. It's the emplaced imagination. Places want to be in relationship with us. And we're the ones who have held ourselves back. And we've talked on this podcast with Sharon Blackie and, and we'll do again with her new book sometime soon. And she's very committed to really connecting to landscape. And it seemed to me that you were able to bring the concept of the tree of life, which I guess is a Jewish concept, is it? Or is it a, a kind of, it's not just a Greek, ancient European concept. Okay, thank you. And that being a microcosm of the macrocosm, that you can see the cosmos within the tree of life. And then that when people find the dreams of earthly location, when they, when they embody the physicality of the dreams, and the way you did in that first dream where you went down into tunnels, that there seems to be almost like a second layer of dreaming. You come into the dream at the relatively superficial layer. Sorry, there's a cat walking across my keyboard. And then you go down into tunnels and the dreams take you deeper. Is that something that you found universally and not just within the Jewish tradition? I'm sorry, there's a lot of questions locked up in there. It seems to me really fascinating. We could probably hold an entire podcast just on dreams of place. So let's see if we can unpick that.
1: Ah. Uh. So one of the dreams in the book actually comes from uh, the f- the 16th century, and the the dreamer is describing this dream of you know the, I I found this little hole and I went in the hole and there was a candle and then there was an ocean and then I got to a palace you know there's sort of this this kind of dream, and you know, lots of us have had those kinds of dreams right, where you're walking along in an ordinary landscape, right, and then all of a sudden there's a door right or there's an entrance to a cave you know and then you're or there's a staircase and then you're in someplace completely different. And as I interviewed dreamers, you know, I heard about these things, you know, oh, I was in a, a university campus and then there was a, a, a staircase and then I was in this, you know, university in the sky. Uh, or uh, I, you know, I went down the stairs, you know, and there were, I found this goddess shrine, you know, and there was a woman writing there, you know, th- those sorts of dreams, I think, you know, are, common to many, many dreamers, you know, across culture. You know, Jung talks about the vertical, right, as the, you know, as the direction of, yes. of, of spirit. Yes. Um, you know, and that is a map that I use when I think about dreaming that, as, but it's not always vertical. Sometimes it's inward. You know, sometimes you're in a house and there's lots of rooms and you're going deeper into the house. You know, there is this sense of journey of, of movement. And I think that that mirrors You know, our desire to get to something real and to get to something magical, you know, that that feels meaningful, that feels compelling. And, you know, as we are pursuing that desire, right, the dream kind of creates what that looks and feels like, you know, it, it gives us an embodied experience of that dream journey. So those places in the dream, often they have a particular feeling of awe or wonder. Like, you know, you've gotten to an unusual, uh, you know, a powerful, a potent place in a dream when you have that feeling of, wow, you know, this is bigger than I thought it could be. Sometimes it's even a color like that blue is so bright or, you know, that tree is so big, uh, that feeling, you know, when you, when you get that feeling, it's like you've come to that place with a capital P You know, I spell it with a capital P in the book, uh, where you're you're really in relationship to the place in the way that Sharon Blackie is talking about, you know, where you come into the sense of this place has an identity, it has a you know it has a consciousness and and I'm connecting to it you know to you know, them, however you understand it in a um, in a deeper way, right in a way that that
0: allows me to open my spirit. and did you find and and the people that you interviewed that once you had a dream place, that felt like that, that was placed with a capital P, that you dreamt back to it on a regular basis? Or was the place different, but still the capital was the same? You knew there was something special, but it wasn't geographically in the same dreamscape.
1: Sometimes people will go back to the same place. One person I interviewed comes back to a particular cave again and again. Right. But mostly I find that it's another version of the same place. For example, I, I interviewed one person who had the experience of being on a bus, and at first the bus is in kind of this horrible industrial landscape, and then she begins to see statues of goddesses, and then uh, the bus goes through a tunnel, and then everybody begins singing, you know, and and it's a unique image, right? I've never mm. dreamt that, yeah. but I immediately recognize the you know going farther and deeper, and then sort of the magic happens, you know, yeah. uh, that that kind of feeling, so. You know, I don't usually dream of the same landscape. It happens sometimes, but not usually. But, you know, there is a sense um, when I've gotten to a particularly um, deep, complex place, like, you know, in the woods or, you know, in the basement of a house or, you know, in a labyrinth. Uh, and I think, oh, you know, usually when I, when I wake up, I think, oh, that, you know, that's the place. I was in the place.
0: Right. Right. And the individual who dreams of the cave at the same time, are they consciously choosing to go back to that cave every time? Or it's just that their dream world holds that degree of coherence to it?
1: Yeah. no, the, Their dreams just bring them back there. Uh, I didn't speak to lots of lucid dreamers. I know some people really focus on that. I didn't speak to, mostly I didn't speak to lucid dreamers. And one of the reasons I like dreams that aren't lucid dreams is that They allow us to be more honest, Hmm. right? Because whenever we are controlling something, right, we have a tendency to want to do the thing that we want to do, right? Like I've had moments of lucid dreaming at the end of a dream where I'm like, I want to fly now, you know, and, and, you know, and sometimes I fly and that's great, but there's something about the dreams where we don't know because it allows us to get to a, a more truthful place because we're not controlling the narrative.
0: Yes, our egos are not in charge absolutely. I, I think I think lucid dreaming is a feels to me the ultimate in kind of Western mindset controlling of something that should be numinous. and And often, you know, as far as I can tell, lucid dreamers use them to have the best kinds of sex they could possibly have, which then leaves real life somewhat disappointing. um and And after a while, I think, really, is that is that it? Because dreams seem to have much more depth, And you've certainly found much more depth within them. So, moving on, I'm looking at your table of contents, and there's Guardians of the Dream Temple, because this is something that comes up a lot when, when I'm teaching dreaming, is people who are afraid to dream, because, because bad things happen in their dreams, and they don't have, we're not wanting to go lucid, but they don't have any resource to find any kind of support and help within the dream space and so they they kind of shut themselves away and try not to dream at all. and it seems that you were able to interview people and I'm guessing there were probably quite a lot of people you interviewed who who didn't find help within the dream space but the ones that you you did had found good help. and I wonder can we unpick that a little bit about what sort of help there is and how people might find it
1: So the reason that that chapter is called
0: Guardians of the dream temple is that often
1: when you get to the place, right? You meet somebody there, right? And that, that person, not always a person, sometimes an animal, sometimes it's a tree, right? Uh, You know, that guardian is often the one who offers help. Uh, You know, some, you know, one dreamer, you know, ended up, you know, falling into a cave. And inside the cave, he met a bear who was really in the embodiment of his father, you know, and there's some of these wonderful, you know, wonderful dream moments.
0: But it took quite a while to work out that it was the embodiment of his father. I think that's important to know. He didn't just realize that in the dream or immediately on waking. It took a lot of help for him to, he understood that the dream was really important. And then he went to speak to people who were able to help him to see that. I think people need, some people can interpret their dreams straight away, but most of us, it takes a while. And what we don't do, what he didn't do, is go and read the books that said, Oh, bears mean this. Yes. Which which is desperate.
1: Right. And and right, in my uh right in in my understanding, one mustn't do that. Right. right? You you mustn't open a dream dictionary and say, What do bears mean? Right? Because that really takes away the organic nature of the experience of what the bear means to you, right, in that, you know, embodied moment in the dream. Yes. And I wanna say it's not always something majestic like a bear you know, sometimes we get these amazing dreams where, you know, some angel, you know, appears and says, I'm going to heal your kidneys, you know, and I mean, I actually talk to people for whom this happens. It's amazing. But sometimes it's like, you know, in one dream, you know, a dreamer like encounters a gardener, you know, and, and she's trying to decide what apple to eat. And he says, well, just eat, eat whatever you like, you know, like, and, you know, that, you know, seemingly mundane interaction can also really have a powerful, um, healing for us, you know, that sometimes the guardian is really somebody who gives you directions. Mm. You know, I remember in one of my dreams, um, I'm in Costa Rica and I have to catch the bus to the airport. And I am on the bus and I realize that I've forgotten, you know, this box with, you know, jewelry that somebody gave me and it's back in my room and I'm not going to be able to get it. And I'm crying on the bus and somebody says to the bus driver, Hey, stop, this lady forgot her, 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 her And the bus driver stops, you know, and I get off and I go searching for my luggage. And you know, when I woke up and I, I really worked on the dream and I thought about it, I was like, well, that was the dream guardian. And hmm. right? I couldn't advocate for myself. I couldn't say, I really want to have, you know, I want to have my precious thing, uh, you know. And and somebody on the bus, you know, advocated for me. Hmm. You know, so so that person in the dream is like a dream guardian, is somebody who. Um, gives you the help when you're not able to find it for yourself. Yeah. And even when you have the dream where there isn't any help around, and we all have those dreams, you know, where there, you know, it's 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 all difficult from beginning to end, you know. Um, sometimes it's a nightmare, and sometimes it's just one of those dreams where, you know, you've lost your passport, you know. But if you watch those dreams over time, yes. you know, eventually something will happen, right? Eventually you'll meet somebody, right, who will be helpful, and if you are working with those characters over time, right, you, you begin to notice them more and more.
0: Yes. And I think that's one of the things that becomes very clear from the book is that the people who record their dreams, however fleetingly they can in the morning, regularly build up the muscle, the capacity to remember them more, and then to see the patterns. And once you've seen the pattern, you can change it. If you If you are perpetually dreaming that you've lost your passport or you're sitting in the exam and you are have done no studying and all of the things that people have as their anxiety dreams, but you don't listen to them, then it seems to me I, I have known people who've had exactly those dreams for their entire lives unchanged because there was never any engagement. So one of the clear things that comes out of your book, I think, is the extent to which a lot of the people you talk to are really engaging with their dreams and using them as a source of wisdom and healing and teaching and support in life as well as in the dreams. Is this because you talked to a lot of Jewish people who work with dreams? Or did you put a call out, I don't know, on social media and got dream workers? Or did you just happen to work in circles where people work with their dreams all the time?
1: I reached out through so many different networks. You know, I talked to students in my dream work classes. Okay, that's I, a know, good
0: start. They're in a dream work class, so they're definitely wanting to work with their dreams.
1: I asked on Facebook, you know, who's had interesting dreams? Okay, Uh, And some of them were people who work regularly on dreams. And sometimes, even if they're not someone who is doing dream work all the time, they were sharing with me a particular dream that had really struck them. And so they had spent time, you know, being with that particular dream uh, because it mattered to them. Can I tell a story about the, how the working on dreams over time makes a difference?
0: Yes, please do. Yes.
1: So, um, so there are a whole bunch of these you know, in the book. Um, but one of the ones that happened to me uh, that really was uh, disturbing at first and ended up being incredibly empowering was uh, when my daughter was very young. When, this, this actually isn't in the book. But when my daughter was very young, um, I began dreaming that she was drowning. And I had these dreams over and over. Because I take these dreams so seriously, I was like, you know, what's going to happen? Is something terrible going to happen? My dream worker kept saying, oh, it's not your daughter, it's your soul. It's just because you feel overwhelmed. I was like, no, (laughs) I'm not doing the metaphor thing. This is not how this feels. you know. And it it was very scary. It went on for a number of years. And then I had a dream and, you know, she fell in a puddle and she began to drown. And in the dream, I said to myself, I've dreamed this so many times. I must know how to deal with this in real life. And I go under the puddle and I pull her out of the water and we both come out of the water together. And I realize, as I'm pulling her out of the water that I am breathing under the water. Yay. And I, I you know, I, we go back to the people that we're with and I say, look, you know, everything is okay. And, and I was watching and I saved her and I woke up and I never had another drowning
0: dream. Oh, interesting.
1: Like like whatever it was that I was working through about my ability to protect her, you know, I had gotten to it. But it, it took years of what is going on with this dream.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And did it change, do you think, the relationship in the waking world between you and your daughter? Did something shift?
1: Absolutely. Uh, it was definitely um, connected to... You know, my learning how to trust her, you know, not to run into the streets, you know, not okay. to, you know, not to eat, you know, not to eat the marble, you know, like, as she was working on that, you know, I was having these dreams. And, right. You know, and I think the resolution wasn't only mine. It was also because you know, she was becoming a person who could regulate herself and, you know, and the dreams reflected that.
0: And did you share these dreams with her? Because there's quite a lot, well, not a lot, but there are dreams that she has in the book. I'm particularly struck by the one where she had as an entry point, a dot on a bit of paper. It's like, yes, the ultimate, it's basic, simple entry point. And it seems to me that in families where multiple generations share their dreams, then they can do work within the dream time together that has what we might call waking world implications. Does that work out for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, One of the practices that has really inspired me, I I spoke with uh, a Native American man who shared that in his family tradition, everybody, including children, shared dreams at the breakfast table. You know, it was coffee and dreams. You know, that's what everybody Mm -hmm. had. Uh, And I and I, you know, I've heard that from other people, you know, within the, the same or similar cultures. So I always ask. My daughter, what did you dream? You know, sometimes she tells me, sometimes she doesn't remember, sometimes she doesn't want to tell me, you know, and I, I don't, I didn't share this one because I felt that was a too big a load to put on her, you know, to, sure. you know, to share with her about the drowning dreams, but I do share with her some of my dreams. And she has shared some wonderful ones with me, you know, and, uh, you know, there was the one you were mentioning about, you know, with, where she goes to the dot on the paper and she, it's like the 12 dancing princesses, you know, she ends up in a, an underground world where she has a prince to dance with, you know, and she meets a sea monster and all of this. There was another one where Maleficent, you know, the Disney character, the, like the, the witch Maleficent from sleeping beauty is teaching okay. her to fly. And, you know, she learns how to fly and then she flies out the window and it, it How was cool, as that? It was an amazing, like, kind of coming-of-age dream, you know, and uh, and you know, it was so interesting to me that the character was teaching her was not such a nice character, but was a very powerful character,
0: hmm. and a powerful woman, right. Yes, Also, right. yes, right.
1: Oh, cool. so absolutely, I, I feel that I learn a lot about uh, my family through dreams, and uh, and you know, I imagine they learn some about me too
0: yeah yeah and if we're going to have healed families, then we need to we need to be healing at every level. and another of the chapters is healing in dreams. and what I'm very aware of is that there's a very mechanistic school of thought about dreams, which says that it is purely our our brains processing the waking world and and there's no real need to pay any attention to them and you you kind of mentioned that on the way through. you've obviously read those papers too. but then we come to things like healing in dreams, which Has always seemed to me, prophetic dreams, healing dreams, teaching dreams, are the dreams that are not, definitely not, us processing our waking world. So can you share with us some of the stories from the healing that people arose from their dreams?
1: Oh, sure. I'd love to. It's actually one of my favorite chapters. You know, I begin the chapter with a couple of pre-modern dreams, you know, from a couple of generations ago that were recorded where, you know, a little girl is very sick and she has a terrible fever and she goes to sleep and her grandmother appears to her, her deceased grandmother appears to her in the dream and says, eat this plum and you'll feel better. And she eats the plum and she wakes up and her fever has broken. You know, yeah. there's another dream there um, where an ancestor comes and gives somebody medical advice, you know, that heals their child. There was one dreamer uh, who you know, was in a hospital and, you know, they literally see an angel in their dream who reaches into their body and heals the, the part of the body that is harmed and, you know, and they wake up and, you know, and they're, and they're better. Yeah. You know, there was a woman who is depressed and uh, she sits down with a man and an elephant in a tent and they give her full Madonnas, which is a, 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 a bean dish, you know, from the middle East and she eats it and she wakes up and she's not depressed anymore. So I mean, yes. these are amazing experiences. You can't really explain them as kind of random firings of the neural nets. You know, like I mean, maybe somebody thinks they can, but
0: I you know I don't I don't see yeah, them. yeah. And and even if they did, it, you know, the end result is these people are better and that's what matters, is the you know, the real world result. I'm kind of curious as to whether, particularly the, the angel in the hospital one, whether anybody tried to tell the medics and what their response was. You don't happen to know? Unfortunately, I don't. No, no, my medical colleagues are, it's, you know, particularly doing studying the homeopathy, so many people, they would say to them, you know, yes, this was happening, and I took this homeopathy, and look, it's gone away. And it's as if the medical people who are deeply embedded in the medical mindset, actually become deaf in those moments. <laughs> it's a very strange phenomenon. And I'm kind of guessing that if you said, well, healing happened in the dream, the same would happen. What I was really intrigued by, particularly the, the the ones from several generations past, was that it wasn't that the little girl had to wake up and say, Mommy, I need to eat a plum, go and find me the plum that you know Granny told me to eat. She ate the dream plum and was healed, which is Amazing and lovely and wonderful. And so I'm wondering also if in your dreaming circles and your dreaming groups, do people ever endeavor to incubate healing dreams?
1: Um, absolutely, we do incubation of dreams. I mean, the thing that I, I I want to be careful about is that, of course, you know, not every illness is going to be healed in a dream. And, and I don't ever want to give people the impression that if they don't receive this sort of dream healing, that they've done something wrong. You know, this is all yes. mysterious and, and not. Predictable, Um, but what I do say to people is to take, you know, if you have such a dream, you know, really take it seriously. I mean, sometimes, of course, you don't have an option. It's clear, you know, from the dream that it Mm. is to be taken seriously. Uh, But you know, sometimes I've woken up from dreams and thought, well, this thing I I did in the dream was healing. I'm going to try that in real life and see what happens. And that has
0: actually worked for me. You know, yes, the witch hazel dreams, yes.
1: You know, the dream where I'm in the apothecary and I ke- uh, apothecary shop and I keep looking at different things and she's like, no, you really need to buy the witch hazel. And I woke up and I had a skin condition and I thought, well, nothing else has worked. I'm going to try the witch hazel and it worked.
0: And it worked. Yeah, nothing to lose is a really good point to get to, isn't it, <laughs> when you start trying these things. And I'm also aware, I remember reading Sandra Ingerman's book on soul retrieval many, many decades ago and she had some kind of, chronic pain condition that was the medics had basically said you know we've got nothing left you just have to just keep taking the morphine and and basically you're crippled for life sorry and she she had thought you know I'm not not lying down with this this is not going to happen and she set the conditions for a dream every night for 6 months and at the end of 6 months she dreamt of being in her downstairs room and, and somebody stepped out from behind the sofa and, and healed her back and she was and she woke up and she was better. So I think one of the things that really struck me about your book and and in all of the dream work is giving things time and not expecting the whole modern thing of make a decision, ask for something, and it arrives Amazon-like within 30 minutes of your even not knowing that you wanted it in the first place. And that dreams are not necessarily like that. they take They take time. And I'm wondering, do you have any dreams that possibly didn't make it into the book or that did where there was dream sequences or Something that spanned a long time for people, of an event and then the dream, or the other way around,
1: oh, absolutely. You know, I've certainly had those. and and there's one in the in the book that really uh, was so moving to me. I mean, I, it, I, it was is such a memorable experience my talking to this dreamer. She had had nightmares, basically her entire life, I mean, for decades, of zombies, you know, you know scary, undead characters you know that you know and if they touched you then you became one you know and and you know these sort of awful dreams that you know that she she said her own words she felt cursed you know that she you know had these dreams you know over and over again for for decades and at some point she began doing dances for universal peace um and you know sort of learning that dance language of you know love and respect for others and then years after that she had a dream in which there's a little, you know, it, it, she had one of these horrible zombie dreams. And then there's a little girl who's like a zombie vampire in the dream. And she begins to, to, um, to sing to the little girl and the girl turns into a human girl. And then she kind of loses it. And the girl turns back into a vampire, you know, and then, uh, you know, she, she has to keep kind of. She keeps losing her faculty. She has to keep sort of trying to connect to this little girl to sing to her. You know, and in the end, you know, she turns into a human girl. And that was the end of the zombie dreams. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was partly with the work that she'd done in her waking life, you know, in the dances of universal peace that she brought that gift, you know, into the dream. But it's also really mysterious, right? Why, after decades of, of struggling with these dreams, you know, suddenly, right, the the dream, you know, the dream healed its pattern. You know, she healed the dream pattern. Uh, you know, that was an incredible experience to hear about those, you know, about those many, many dreams and then the healing of them.
0: And and also the context of her life um, in a, her kind of social status in America and, and again, doing those dances and how that had changed. And it struck me reading it and again, listening to you now that there's something about being able to develop Dream will the capacity to focus within your dreams for her to be able to come back because a lot of people would have that dream and the little girl they would sing to the little girl who would go from vampire to human but then they'd lose track they'd lose focus and the little girl would revert to being vampire and then the dream would become horrible and that would be the end of it but this woman was able to keep coming back and keep coming back and I think in waking world and dreaming world the capacity to hold that sense of self clearly and cleanly and hold a clear intent seems really important and i'm wondering do you find that also in your particularly i'm thinking of your dream students do you see within them a, a ramping up of their capacity to hold intent within dreams
1: i think one does i think one does see that uh, that as you practice, right, as it becomes important to you what happens in the dream, right, as you practice, right, you begin to notice more, but you also begin to do, right, you begin to expand your ability, uh, you know, within the dream. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, years ago when I was I was an adolescent, I used to have scary snake dreams, you know, like a lot of people, I yeah. had smoke nightmares, you know. And at one point, um, when I was about 17, a man named Gabriel came to me in my dream and he gave me a sword and he said, now you're going to kill the snake. Wow. And there was a giant snake, you know, terrifying snake that I would have run screaming from, you know, in any other moment. And, uh, he, and I, you know, I took the sword and I killed the snake and, uh, you know, that was not exactly the end, but definitely the, you know, the cessation of the, you know, the real, uh, terror of those, of those dreams. Yeah. I rarely dreamed about snakes after that. And I think it was partly, you know, my own consciousness working on, you know, those dreams. What do I, you know, how do I get rid of these things? What do I do about this? Um, you know, something was being worked out. So I think some of it is patience, right? You just have to kind of wait, you know, the work is happening in you, right? And then there's also the, um, right, the drawing your attention to it, right, will at some point, you know, often draw some healing to that area because you know the brain knows that you're you're working on that, right you're thinking about it you're you're putting your your an energy into it, and you know the dream world you know may not always will but but often will you know respond to the energy that you are yeah uh, which is uh, you are putting in, which is like a dream incubation process right of saying this is the dream that I want
0: yes. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit more? Because a lot of people are not familiar with dream incubation processes. So how do you teach your students? I realize this is going to be the edited small, short version that you probably take weeks to train. But what is the edited small version of dream incubation? So
1: there's a lot of traditional Jewish material about this, right? There are bedtime prayers that include, you know, may my dreams be peaceful, you know, may I not have bad dreams. There are incubation prayers uh, and dream incubation is just a fancy way of saying asking for a dream. You can say a formal invocation or a prayer or a request, uh, but you can also just um, think about you know what kind of dream you would like to have. You know, uh, sort of you know put it in your body. And most people do this right before they go to sleep, uh, but you can also do it several times throughout the day before you get to bed um, to say I, I would like a dream that you know, that relates to my healing, or I would like a dream that relates to an ancestor that I want to see again. And those requests are, are often answered. And I always say, don't assume that because your dream was not exactly on topic, that it's not an answer to your question. Right? Yes. Yes. Often it is an answer to your question, but not the, not the way that you had framed it right? But you, what, you have to be flexible with that. You have to allow the dream world to communicate in its own language. Yes. So whatever dream I get, if I get one, you know, I, I assume that it's an answer to the question. And I, you know, I, I read it with that in mind. Brilliant. And I even find, you know, that at moments of real despair, you know, when I have said, you know, when, when I have really been in a, a state of not being able to hope for a dream that would help me, Uh, those dreams have particularly come in those moments.
0: Yes, yes, because once you have a relationship with your dreams, I think after a while you don't have to ask, you just have to listen, Mm -hmm. And and then the guidance is there. Beautiful, brilliant, thank you. And then there's a chapter on dream healing our world, and we're at the start of a new year, and each new year now feels to me more traumatic in a way, or at least that we're deeper into what Joanna Meski calls the great transition. We, it's so obviously not ever going to go back to how it was. And I'm, I'd like to look at some of the dreams within The Dream Healing Our World and then I'd like to look at where we think we could take that because it seems to me one of the really important things in in all of our communities. So have you got any good stories of dreams that were in the book or dreams that didn't make it to the book of of dream healing of the world? So this was
1: actually one of the core things that made me want to write the book was that I wanted to say something about ecological dreaming that people are dreaming the, the global warming, they're dreaming climate change, they're dreaming, you know, all of these things. And they're also dreaming healing, right? They're dreaming the trauma, absolutely, right? And they're also dreaming, you know, potential planetary healing. And those dreams, I think, are so important. And... I think it's important not to see those only as our personal dreams but also as dreams that are coming through us as a way of as a way the planet is speaking to us right, right. so I think we have some uh, some calling to share right those dreams and some of the ones this one didn't actually in the end make it into the book but was very powerful to me uh, was a a, a woman dreaming of, um, logging, uh, you know, she saw trees being logged, you know, and the trees are being cut down and wiped out and she's, you know, she's weeping and she can't do anything about it. And, you know, the loggers leave and she begins to cry and her tears fall on the tree stumps and then they begin to sprout. Oh, wow. Um, it, I just, I, it, it still gives me chills, just this, this, this amazing dream. You know, another dream, uh, someone had where polar bears are coming into a summer camp and you know they're there to protest you know that their you know their environment is being wrecked and the, the campers are very afraid and then they realize the polar bears are very afraid you know and you yeah. know, it's, it's a moment of kind of i vow uh, meeting you know mm-hmm. um yes you know some of these uh you know some dreams uh, uh like this um The Native American dreamer that I mentioned to you earlier, I shared a dream about, he saw a split screen where uh, half of it was, you know, people pleasantly having a picnic. And on the other half, he saw, you know, flames and people being burned and the landscape being destroyed. Now, you can't get clearer than that.
0: Hmm. And, And that, for him, became a move towards becoming effectively a shamanic interlocutor for his tribe for his people so it was an initiatory dream as well as a potential future foretelling dream right and sometimes
1: dreams are like that like another dreamer was inspired uh, to move to hawaii to work on behalf of the protection of hawaiian volcanoes and mountains uh and that really began uh, with the dream world so uh, Mm -hmm. you know I, i think it's really happening it's really uh it's it's an avenue you know for planetary healing that we can draw on and I think it's really good for us to share these dreams with one another. But first, because it's a way of acknowledging that we're all being affected and traumatized and, and shaped by what's happening. You know, but it also yes. is a potential source of uh, wisdom about what to do now.
0: I'm, I'm interested, again, in that that split-screen dream where half of the dream was kind of devastated, scorched landscapes, and the other half was people having picnics and having just watched Don't Look Up. It really resonated. Um, and I'm wondering about the role of predictive dreams, because that's not something you go into in great depth in the book, of whether in your dreaming world all predictions come true, or whether they're a warning of an event that we have the power to change.
1: There is a story that I heard um, from Yei Luisa Teich, uh, in which she had a dream that a man was going to be attacked at a bus stop, and the dream gave her a phone number. Wow. And when she woke up, she literally called the phone number and she said to the gentleman on the other end who didn't know who she was and was very suspicious, do you go to X bus stop? And he said, I do. And she said, Please don't go to work today. Go 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 to work a different way. Please don't go to the bus stop. And at first he was like, you know, lady, I don't know you from a hole in the wall. And in the end, he agreed <laughs> that he would not go to his bus stop, that this story was compelling enough that uh Yay. sometimes dreams are like that. You know, they they predict. I, I know people who predicted fires and houses. But Many dreams don't do that. I always am careful to say that because I don't want to give people the impression that every nightmare they have is going to come true, you know, because that's not, you know, that's not the case. But I do find you know, that dreams are often telling us what is happening now in a way that allows us to be responsive. I have learned that there's, there's a certain kind of slimy alligator creature that appears in my dream if I have a bacterial infection.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay.
1: It's been very consistent. Like I have the slimy alligator dream and, and, you know, and then I know that something is going on in my body. Uh, so some dreams are not exactly literal, you know, the way that, you know, the one that I just shared with you is, but they're still telling you something Mm. that's real information. Yeah. But I would say I've not experienced the dreams are so deterministic that once you have the dream, you know, it has to happen that way. Mm. Uh, Often, once you have the dream, right you now are in a different position.
0: You give an agency. The dream gives you the agency. yes,
1: yes, yes. And right? That's true for us as individuals. And I think it I hope it's also true for us as a species,
0: yes, yes, because otherwise, the shaman who had the the split screen dreams was was one of the most terrifying moments of the book of. oh my gosh. I wonder whether in his tradition, everything, pans out. Because in the tradition I was taught, definitely predicted dreams are there to give you the agency to change. There's no point in frightening people with this is going to happen. It's, you need to be aware at this moment that that you have the power to change the outcome, for sure. I'm terribly impressed that the woman was able to remember the phone number because in, <laughs> like, again, in the tradition that I have, if you can read, you're probably not dreaming until I've just realized in the last two or three years I uh, reading in dreams now happens routinely. So, so I think after a while that doesn't, doesn't count, but remembering a phone number is extremely impressive.
1: Yeah. I have one other example, if it's okay, yes, uh, which is a gentleman once came to me with a dream telling me that he had had this dream of having a car accident and he'd had it a number of times. It was a very frightening dream. And then the car accident began to unfold for him in the in the waking world, and he knew what to do yes. because yes. of the
0: dream. Yes, yes, I have a, a very similar experience. of I knew it was a predictive dream, and and I knew that I was going to die, and I spent a lot of time trying to see the the geographic because it was it was very clear. There was a iron railings and a plowed field and a and an oak tree, um, and and I was overtaking. So I was on the right-hand side of the road, and then there was there was traffic coming towards me, and the only way to stop a multi-car pileup was to turn off the road and kill myself driving into the oak tree. And I woke up as I as I hit the tree, and I spent probably the next two or three years after that really watching. And then eventually, it did happen, not where I thought. I thought it was in Devon, and actually, it was in Hereford, and exactly those events happened. And I looked to my right, and there's the railings on the oak tree, and I had. You know, time does very strange things at those points. Time time did its whole expansile thing. And I realized that I was in the one of our two cars where if I really put my foot down, I could make the gap and get back. And that I wouldn't have been given the dream if it were not the case that it was possible to do this without killing multiple people. And I'm still here, so so I did. And if I hadn't had the dream, I would definitely have pulled off the road because I was in that position of, I, you know, one of us dies or you know, 20 of us die. And if it's just one, it's going to be me. And, and I would be dead anyway if I stayed where I was. But I, I made the gap. And and so for me, always predictive dreams have a very particular quality to them when I'm dreaming them. And they're always, I take them as watch this dream, work out where the turning point is so that when it unfolds, you know what to do. And and quite a lot of my dreaming students have, have similar experiences. Um, death and rebirth in dreams. I was very, very interested in that particular chapter. I'm particularly at the moment I'm writing about dreaming into death and, and and that seems we were always taught that dreaming is a practice for dying. And if we can hold our intent and our attention and our sense of self from the moment we fall asleep to the moment we wake up, there is a chance that when we move into the deepest dreaming, which is death, we'll be able to hold our sense of self and, and work out where we're going. And it also seems and, and reading your chapter too, that one of the ways where the dead can reach the living is within the dream space. Do you want to say a little bit about that?
1: Some of the most powerful experiences that people shared with me were experiences of, of ancestor dreams, uh, you know, and you know, sometimes of, of death dreams uh, you know, for themselves. Um, but you know, my experience is that world is a very permeable, you know, that 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 that, that you know that that curtain is uh, very thin, you know, in a, you know, in the dream space. So I, you know, became aware of dreams of people who were dying, where they, you know, they had some vision that made it clearer and easier and sort of how to go through this. Yes. Um, there were dreams that of people's loved ones who came to them to reassure them, to give them messages. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, those dreams were very, very powerful. And then sometimes people would have death dreams, not at moments when they were dying or where somebody their loved were dying, but because they were experiencing radical change. Yeah. Right? yeah. And that, you know, sort of came to them in the dream, you know, as, you know, a death and rebirth uh, moment. Uh, and I think when you've experienced that in a dream, right, it... it you you do have some more accommodation, right? To what it means mm-hmm. to to die. It's it, you know as as you said, I, I, you know it is a kind of practice for that. Uh, the, the Talmud says that sleep is one sixtieth of death, and dreams are one sixtieth of prophecy.
0: Right, right. One sixtieth of death. I, I remember the one sixtieth of prophecy, but that's yeah. It's because it seems to me, along with how do we heal ourselves and the planet, our our culture's complete incapacity to handle the fact that we are going to die. And it might be a useful thing to actually consider this before the actual event, because you only get one chance probably. You know, some people come back, but not very many. And it it might be useful to have thought about it ahead of time. And I'm wondering, did the people who dreamt of dying, did it give them a sense of having had a, re- a rehearsal that, so that they could go through the real thing with more equanimity?
1: One of the people that I spoke to and whose books I read um, is named um, Mary Jo Hayen, and she does dream work in hospices. Uh, You know, that's that's what she does. Uh, She goes into hospices and she talks to people about their dreams. And one of the things that she says is that people dream basically like you and I dream right up until close to when they're going to die. And when they and when they are actively dying, they begin to have these very extraordinary death dreams. Right. Uh, so those dreams are a certain kind of rehearsal, right, where where you know people are actually being initiated into the you know the death passage, right, before it happens. Yay. And and then there are these other dreams that are more normal. I'm making quote marks with my my fingers. But you know that also give us a sense of what it means to be mortal, mm. right? And that prepare us uh, in a more long term way for death. And I'm particularly thinking, um, and this is in the in the book, um, uh, the dreams I had about my father, uh, you know, when he was elderly, and although I didn't know I didn't know this, you know, close to dying, uh, I had this amazing dream in which I came to visit my parents, and both of them were connected to plants that clearly. We're teaching something about them. My mother was holding a little withered but very fragrant orchid. And my father took me out on the deck to show me this immense pear tree that, you know, is not there in the waking world, but it, it was there in the dream. And I looked at the immense blooming pear tree, gorgeous, and I said, you know, that's, that's beautiful. And he, and he kept beckoning to me. There was something that he wanted me to see that I hadn't seen. And so I walked closer, and when I looked off the edge of the deck, I saw that the pear tree had dropped its blossoms all over the ground. And that was the image, right, of human m- mortality, right? That here the tree is beautiful, it's you know it's gorgeous, it's magical, and it's ephemeral, right? The blossoms mm-hmm. are falling, and that image stays with me. You know, I, if there's an image in my dreams that taught me about death, yeah. you know, that's the image. And, you know, I, I I still think about, you know, the the importance of that image mm. for me, you know, the ways that it taught me about appreciating the beauty and also recognizing, right, the limitation. Yeah, like recognizing the transience that. of life,
0: so yes. Right, exactly. Yes. Yes, thank you for sharing that. And I remember those bits in the book. It felt very moving. And And I wonder, your mother is still alive?
1: Mm.
0: Have you shared these dreams with her?
1: I haven't.
0: But they're in the book. She's going to read the book. <laughs> so now you have. I guess that's true.
1: <laughs> but I think she would like the image of the orchid. Mm. I think that was a really beautiful image of her.
0: Yeah, very striking because it's it's small and it's wizened, but it smells gorgeous. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And, and it then gives you a language, again, because one assumes that she will die before you. And it gives you a language to begin to settle into that which seems to me, just finding the language around death with our parents seems such an important thing. We are heading towards the end of our time, and I'm wondering, there's so much in the book, and it's so rich. Is there any last dream that stands out that you would like to share with people as we're heading down to the close?
1: I The one that's coming to me is the dream at the end of the book, uh, because I think it really offers a wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, image of dreaming itself. And to just give a little bit of that dream. So in the dream, I'm in a very high tower. And I have to go down to the bottom of the tower, which apparently is a very scary place, and kind of scout around for the people who live at the top of the tower. And uh, in the latter part of the dream, I make a very long journey. It takes weeks sort of down the the staircase of this tower to get to this, this chaotic, scary place at the bottom of the tower. And when I get there, I discover that friends of mine are on an immense volcanic rock slide, water slide, you know, sledding and having a fabulous time and encouraging me, you know, that when I get there, I'm going to love it. And I love this dream. And one of the reasons that I love the dream uh, is, is that right, this is actually what happens when we dream, right? We We kind of you know, go down into this place that's sort of scary. And in part of the dream, I actually have to take an elevator that's really just a circle of rock, and I'm kind of in free fall. You know, it's very scary. Um, but when I get to the bottom, you know, it's beautiful. Hmm. So that's really kind of what it's like. Dreaming is a little scary, right? We don't know what's going to happen. We can't control it. Sometimes scary things happen. But there's, a, there's an excitement and a magic and an adventure to dreaming that I think is really almost unique in our experience.
0: Yes and and you have a spiritual community in the dream that sense of people who want to share their joy with you which feels really important in the world that we're coming into that sense of being able to build communities around joy feels
1: huge and sharing our dreams with people sort of giving our give, allowing our vulnerability to let people know us better uh, and and, and uh, be in spiritual uh, inquiry together.
0: Yes. As the last sentence of the book, may the presence guide each of us where we need to go. Perfect.
1: I just want to th- say thank you for a most wonderful conversation.
0: Thank you. It's been glorious. I so enjoy talking with you, Jill. Thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. We'll talk to you again sometime, I'm sure. And that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Rabbi Jill for writing this book, for the depth of the work that she's done, looking at how dreams work. So many dream books are busy trying to tell us how to interpret them on the basis of, if you dream of flying it means this, which as I hope is really clear by now, is a very, very bad way of interpreting dreams. And Jill hasn't done that. She's really looked into the heart of people's dreams and shared the process by which she and they began to unfold them, and it's rarely a one-hit process. A lot of dreams are not in clear text telling us what to do or how to be, or how the world could be different or better. They're iterations towards something that we are exploring in waking life, as well as sleeping life. And Jill's book really, I think, gets into the roots of that across many cultures. So it's out in February, I will put a link in the show notes. And in the meanwhile, we will be back next week with another conversation. Huge thanks to Kara C for the sound production and the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith Tillery for the website and for making everything happen behind the scenes. Thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts. And as ever, enormous thanks to you for listening. We wouldn't be here without you. And if you know of anybody else who really wants to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.